We're going to read uh, this morning from Acts chapter 4, verses 32, to chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, We're going to study further than that today, but that's just what we're going to read in this portion. Uh, That's on page 912, if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Acts chapter 4, verses 32, to chapter 5, verse 2. And as I read, remember, we're reading God's word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who also was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as Jesus' missionaries. You may be seated. He'd never buried a body before, and he never wanted to do it again. And all he could think as he slowly walked home was, what have I gotten myself into? Everything had started off so great, but then this. You know, a few months earlier, he had just been skeptical of all of it. You know, teenagers don't really believe their parents about anything, especially when their parents get excited about some new religious thing. So when his mom and dad came home and said, oh, son, we heard the most amazing man teach today, and we saw him heal, and he did amazing works, we think he might be the Messiah. He thought, they're just crazy. So it wasn't too long before that one Friday when his parents came home devastated. They killed him, his mom said. They killed, they crucified our Jesus. Now he loved his mom too much to say out loud what he was really thinking. Son of God, huh? That's what you get for believing all this fantasy stuff. But a couple days later, Things started to change. The first rumors started that Sunday afternoon, and they wondered, could this be? Is this possible? No, this couldn't possibly have happened. People don't rise from the dead. So when he heard that a few days later in that week, some people were getting together for dinner, and they thought that maybe, just maybe, Jesus would be there, he was intrigued, and he had to see it for himself. People don't rise from the dead. Come on, we can't take this seriously. But he saw him. And he held Jesus' pierced hands and he saw Jesus' feet. And from that moment, he was all in as a follower of Jesus. Well, since then, incredible things had happened. Jesus had taught and had ministered with all of these people that were following him for about 40 days. And then he had watched as Jesus rose up, ascended into the clouds. 
Jesus had promised that the Holy Spirit would come and this young teenage boy was filled himself with the Holy Spirit and given an ability to speak in a language he'd never learned before. It was so exciting. Thousands of people were being baptized. Thousands of people were coming to trust in Jesus and the community they had in this new church. Oh, it was sweet. People sacrificed for each other. People loved each other. The things that the apostles were doing, the signs and the wonders, were remarkable. There was even a man who had been born 40 years before and had never walked, who all of a sudden was healed and able to walk. And not only did this young man get to be part of this newborn church, but he was actually invited to train under the apostle Peter himself. He got a front row, up close and personal view of ministry and life from the people who learned it from Jesus. But this day was different. It was awful. It was sad. Oh, it was so sad. It was so scary. Oh, it was scary. See, he'd never buried a body before, let alone two. And he never wanted to do it again. And the main thing he thought as he walked home and he considered his own sin and his own hypocrisy, he wondered if someday what happened to them might happen to him. It was a wake-up call for sure. At Redemption Gateway, we need a wake-up call too. So if you have your Bible, we're going to look today at Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, and we're going to see the wake-up call that we need and the wake-up call that the early church God. Now, before we get to the scary part, the awful part, we need to look at something that's really, really beautiful. So if you have your Bible, look at chapter 4, verses 32 through 37 with me, and then in a moment we'll get to the scary stuff. All right? Here's what it says in Acts chapter 4, 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This reminds us, as we've been going through the book of Acts, and we're doing it over many, many weeks, just looking at a portion at a time. If you've been with us, this reminds us of what we saw back in Acts chapter 2. At the end of Acts chapter 2, there was kind of this summary statement that said that they were committed to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers, and everybody had everything in common. And, and if you were here that Sunday, uh, Josh Watt preached, and he showed that wonderful uh, Coca-Cola ad from the 70s, right, about all the, you know, unity and harmony, and he said that's sort of what you feel like as you as you read this and and that is what you feel like there's this oneness there's this togetherness they have everything in common now now just to be clear because people sometimes ask this about verse 32 this is not advocating communism uh, that they no one had anything they they had everything in common it's just describing the kind of generosity and the kind of unity that existed where rather than kind of going hey this is my stuff keep your hands off of it they said hey what I have is from God and what I have is to be stewarded to be a blessing to other people It says in verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They were saying, hey, listen, Jesus rose from the dead. We saw it. You can't deny it. They didn't stop talking about Jesus. That was the very thing that in early chapter four, they were told, hey, you can't keep talking about it. And instead, they keep talking about it. And it says, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any 
had need. And then it describes in verses 36 and 37 this man named Barnabas who did this very thing. So here's what was happening. They would have homes, they would have lands, they would have property, and they were selling it and saying, why don't we use this to serve our community? This is amazing, right? When we think about giving, we typically think, well, if I have anything left, or maybe we even think, and this is an appropriately biblical way to think, I'll prioritize a certain of the first amount that comes in and I'll, and I'll give that to others or I'll give that to the needy or I'll give that to the work of the church. These guys were saying, what can we sell to be able to have more money to give away for ministry? That's remarkable. And so what we see, the first thing we see uh, here through this early part of this story, this beautiful part, before we get to the scary part, the, the thing that we see is that generosity is compelling. Generosity is compelling. It, it's just this beautiful sounding thing, right? It sounds like Acts 2, 42 to 47. And again, when Josh preached that, he made the point that that, that sounded almost like the Garden of Eden of the church, Right, the Garden of Eden, that's the place at the beginning of the scriptures and the beginning of the history of the world where God has made man and woman in his image and he walks with them in the cool of the day and there's this unity and there's this harmony and there's this love. And it's just beautiful. And, and this sounds like that same thing. Did you notice how it said one heart and soul? And that's compelling. Man, when people are really generous, not just giving leftovers, not just going, well, I guess if I have to, but right, some of you are going to do this with diapers and with formula next week. Some of you are going to like pull up with a bunch of it and it's going to be incredible and you're not going to do it so that you hope people will clap or you hope people will notice. You'll just do it because you're generous and there will be people who will come into our church who don't normally come here and they'll walk by a mountain of diapers and formula and they'll go, what is this? And it's because generosity is compelling. Jesus told his disciples that everyone would, would, would see their love for one another. Here's what he says in John 13. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what you see here is love for one another. This is why the measure of Christian maturity is not what you know it's not the activities you're involved in, it's how you love. And love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand payback or that the person is deserving. And when people see that, it is compelling. My favorite stories about this is a, a friend of mine who uh, I used to be in, in the last church I was at, he was at that church there, and he told me this great story about, he was leading this small group at the time and uh, they would just kind of study through a portion of scripture and talk about it. And uh, there was this woman that his wife always went to get her hair done from. And uh, this, this, this hairdresser was not a follower of Jesus. And so his wife was always asking her, hey, would you, would you come to church with me? Would you come to this Bible study with me? She would just invite her to anything that she thought she might come to. And she kept saying no, kept saying no, kept saying no. And finally, one night, uh, Karen's in there getting her hair done, and, uh, the, the, or one day, Karen's in there, and, and the lady says, hey, I think I'd like to come to you, with you to something. Is anything going on soon? And Karen said, well, actually, yeah, tonight we have our small group. Do you want to come? She said, yeah, sure, I want to come. So Karen went home and told her husband, hey, so-and-so is coming to this small group tonight. And the husband, the small group leader, panicked. And here's why. The passage that they were going to study that night was what we're about to study in Acts chapter 5. 
where some people drop dead because of their hypocrisy. And he's thinking, oh my gosh, this woman doesn't know church, this woman doesn't know the Bible. Like, we could not have a weirder, more seeker-insensitive passage to study tonight. And so he's thinking, maybe we should just change it. Maybe we should call an audible. Maybe we should do something else. Maybe. And then he went, you know what? This is maybe just God is sovereign over this, and maybe this is just when he wanted her to come. And so uh, she came, and they're having this whole conversation about all the weird stuff that we're about to study in just a minute. And everyone's talking, and everyone's talking, and, except her. She's just sitting there watching. And, and my friend's sitting there looking at her thinking, oh no, what, what's going on here? And finally, after a while, he says, hey, uh, I noticed you haven't said anything, but do you have anything that you want to add? And she got emotional and she said, I just can't believe that you all get together like this all the time and love each other. <laughs> She didn't, wasn't even thinking about Ananias and Sapphira and who's dropping dead and any of this. She was just thinking, I don't ever see this. I don't see people of different ages and different races and different stages of life and different circumstances that just get together and love each other. Like, this is a foreign thing to me. And I think if you've been in the church, you can sort of take that for granted. You can forget that one of the strongest uh, boosts of confidence that anyone can have in the Christian faith is the life of the people of God live together because generosity is compelling. Now, the flip side, the scary stuff, is that if generosity is compelling, hypocrisy is repelling. Generosity is compelling, but hypocrisy is repelling. So let's look at Acts chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now, now get this. Notice what Peter's saying. Peter is not saying that Ananias' sin was that he only gave part of it. What Peter's saying is Ananias' sin was giving part of it and acting like he gave all of it. Right? Do you, do you see that? Here's his questions in verse, uh, verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Ananias, you didn't have to sell this at all. You could have kept this, and that would have been absolutely fine. That would have honored God. It's your property. You can do what you want with it. Right? That's one of the reasons we know that this isn't communism. Like, you're free to sell it or not sell it if you want to. That's up to you. That's your call. He says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Right? After you sold it and you got all the money, couldn't you do whatever you wanted with it? Sure. So the, the, the problem here is that he kept back part of it, but said, no, here's all of it. That's the lie. That's the hypocrisy. 
right? And notice, this is important just theologically speaking. Notice in verse 3, it says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 says, you've not lied to man, but to God. This is one of the reasons we believe the Holy Spirit is not uh, just a force out there, but is actually God. Because Peter says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God. How did he lie? By saying he was all in when he wasn't. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men, these are the interns studying under the apostle Peter. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. He'd never buried a body before, and he didn't want to do it again. What had happened? Hypocrisy is repelling. So Ananias says, oh, I sold it for this much. Here's, I'm all in. And, and here's, here's my gift, but he actually held some back. She agreed with him to do that. And God, in his judgment on them, and mercy, perhaps, on the church, strikes them dead. Get this, Peter didn't kill them. God did. Wow. That's, that's no joke, right? Do you see twice there it says that great fear came upon all who heard of it? Look at verse 5. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Hypocrisy is repelling. Notice a few things about hypocrisy. First, hypocrisy is the first real threat to the church. Right? Up to this point, everything had been going swimmingly up through chapter 3. You get to chapter 4, and there's a threat of persecution. There's a threat. Hey, stop talking about Jesus. You can't do this anymore. You have to knock it off. And they say, sorry, we're not going to. And the apostles, in that sense, have victory over the, the opponents who are trying to squash Christianity from outside. But then the fall, right? If, 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 the, the, fir, if the, the beautiful one heart, one mind, everything in common, super generous, generosity is compelling. If that's the Garden of Eden, the fall, the rebellion, the sin is Ananias and Sapphira. And notice the threat that corrupts the church isn't from outside. It's from inside. The thing that God judges is not the persecution from outside, though God eventually will take care of that, but it's the hypocrisy inside. The, the real damage to the church 
isn't the changing culture, and it's not the Supreme Court decisions, and it's not Hollywood, and it's not politics, and it's not D.C., and it's not school boards. It's, it's us. We're the threat. This is true in our lives, too, isn't it? The, the, the biggest threat to your marriage is you. Right, we worry as parents and as grandparents about what kind of a world are our kids going to experience and what kind of things are going to make them possibly lose their faith. Do you know one of the things that will make them lose their faith faster than anything? Parental hypocrisy. Where on Sundays, I'm all in. And the rest of the week, Jesus who? The biggest threat to the church. The biggest threat to our own lives comes from within. Hypocrisy is the first real damage to the church. Notice this about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy isn't failing. Hypocrisy is pretending. Hypocrisy is not failing. It's pretending. We oftentimes use the, the, the word hypocrite to describe somebody who says one thing and does another. And, and I know in our culture that's kind of the typical way that it's talked about. But, but the actual sin of hypocrisy isn't failing because everyone fails. The sin of hypocrisy is pretending you don't fail. It's pretending you're something you're not. In fact, the word hypocrite, it comes from Greek drama. And, and the word hypocrite, some of you will really like this, especially if you enjoyed the Oscars last week. The word hypocrite is the Greek word for actor. Because in Greek drama, what would happen is in Greek drama, they would play roles wearing masks. So if you've ever thought, oh, it feels like, it feels like I just have this mask on. Like nobody sees the real me. Like I'm just pretending. Yeah, that's a hypocrite. That's where it comes from. Everybody fails. Everybody fails to live up to their own standard. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is falling short of the standard and not living and then acting like you don't. Hypocrisy is saying, I'm all in when you're not. Are you all in for Jesus? Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you kind of go, well, yes and no. Like, I think, I, I mean, I want to follow him. I want to love him. I want to serve him. I want to honor him with my life. But no, I, I, I'm not all in. I know the ways my mind wanders. I know the, the indulgences I have with my money. I know the judgmental thoughts I have at people that aren't even followers of Christ. And I, and I know my failure. Listen, hypocrisy is acting like you're all in when you're not. It's fascinating. Every week we get together, me and the other teaching pastors and other pastors who are just developing from within redemption congregations, and we get together at this meeting we call Preaching Collective, where we study these passages and we uh, kind of talk through what we might say. And uh, we all go off and write our own sermons, but it's just kind of a time to study and process and think together. And you know the number one thing that we talked about during Preaching Collective for this passage? It was, how is God not going to strike us dead while we preach it? Because <laughs> here's the thing. I know that I'm not all in. All the time. I want to be. 
God's growing me, God's working me, but I know I'm not. And I know that when you put me on a stage and you put me under the lights and you strap a microphone on my face, everything about that says, act like you're all in. And here's the other danger. You all are very, very comfortable with thinking I'm all in. You want to think I'm all in because you think somebody's got to be all in. I hope it's him. (laughs) And the temptation for me is to let you keep thinking that. And that is hypocrisy. Here's how Eugene Peterson describes this in a book for pastors, about pastors. He says this, I don't know of any other profession in which it is quite as easy to fake it as in ours. By adopting a reverential demeanor, cultivating a stained glass voice, slipping occasional words like eschatology into conversation. Not often enough to actually confuse people, but enough to keep them aware that our habitual train of thought is a cut above the pew level. We are trusted without any questions asked as stewards of the mysteries. Even when in occasional fits of humility or honesty we disclaim sanctity, we are not believed. People have a need to be reassured that someone is in touch with ultimate things. Their own interior lives are a muddle of shopping lists and good intentions, guilty adulteries, whether fantasized or actual, and episodes of heroic virtue, desires for holiness mixed with greed for self-satisfaction. They hope to do better someday, beginning maybe tomorrow or at the latest next week. Meanwhile, they need someone around who can stand in for them, on whom they can project their wishes for a life pleasing to God. If we provide a bare-bones outlines of pretense, they take it as the real thing and run with it, imputing to us clean hands and pure hearts. Do you know how scary that is? Pray for me. I'm I'm not being, I'm not kidding. Pray for me. And pray for our pastors. One of the things that, Right, this, this is, I've, I've not talked to a preacher or someone training in ministry where the question of how much vulnerability do you share from the front? Right, and there are some people who go, don't share any. People don't want to learn hitting from a 100 hitter. If you act like you, if you talk about your failure, no one will follow you. Yeah, but if you don't, God might strike you dead. <laughs> and listen, pastors aren't the only ones who pretend. You pretend, don't you? You know the times when you're faking it. And you're putting on a show and you're playing a part. That's the biggest threat in the church. Here's the third thing we see about hypocrisy is that hypocrisy shows that we don't really understand gospel grace. Gospel or hypocrisy shows that we don't really understand gospel grace. What were Ananias and Sapphira doing in this? What were they doing? They were trying to earn a reputation. Surely they had seen how other people had done it. Surely they had seen how Barnabas, who's this person we're going to keep seeing throughout the book, this son of encouragement, this incredibly faithful guy, they've seen him and they thought, ooh, we could earn some points with this. We could appear good with this. Maybe we could uh, you know, kind of go up a notch a few levels. Maybe even this was a path toward leadership in their minds. Can you imagine if God had not dealt with it in judgment and that kind of hypocrisy and leadership had been in the early nascent church? But they were trying to earn something. They were doing what uh, sociologists call status signaling. 
or this really interesting article uh, by this uh, Columbia professor who studied the different ways that different cultures uh, signal to each other status, right? So in the, in the kind of early uh, 1900s, uh, you would signal status by not working as much, by taking leisure and, you know, to going on vacation and doing those sorts of things. That's how you showed everybody, I have wealth, I'm important. She said, now what we see in the research is that the way you show everyone you're important is by not taking vacation, but by showing everyone, here's how hard I work. Here's how important I am. Look at all these people I know. Right? And all of that is the status signaling. Here's what she says. She says, you could argue that every choice we make signals. The brands we pick, whether we pick brands or not, are always saying something about who we are the same way as when you get a haircut or something. So here's what she's saying. She's saying we're status signaling all the time. And social media just turns this up, right? It says, here's what I want you to think about me. Here's the role I want you to envision me as. Here's the mask I'm wearing. It's status signaling. And it's saying, I'm not happy enough with how God thinks of me. I don't, I don't take enough comfort and enough rest in his grace. I need what you think of me to improve. That's a misunderstanding of grace. It's trying to earn a reputation before people rather than resting in the reputation we have before God because he has cleansed us through the blood of Jesus. And here's what the gospel says. The gospel says you are a child of God by sheer grace. Here's what sheer grace means. Sheer grace means you can't earn it. Even your very best things don't count. They don't improve your score. You need the absolute, total, sheer grace of God to cover you. That's what the gospel says. And therefore, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. If you've noticed that banner on our hallway, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. If the gospel sinks in deep, then rather than being hypocrites, putting on masks, trying to prove something to one another. We can say, no, God, your approval's enough. I've trusted in you. I've turned from my sin. I, I still fall short of you, but I know that the, 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 even the sins I still commit need your grace and your covering and that you have given me that in Jesus. And your opinion's enough. That's the gospel. But hypocrisy comes when we don't really believe the gospel. When we think, no, but I need to do more. I need to be more impressive. Hypocrisy is this huge threat to the church. It comes from within. It's not failing, it's pretending. And hypocrisy shows we don't believe the gospel. Here's what grace means. Grace means that we deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got. That's what we deserve. Because God could do that and we would deserve it and it would be just if God dropped us dead just because of our sin, not just our pretending. Right? That's what the gospel of grace says is we deserve to be struck dead. All who sin are under a curse and we need forgiveness and grace is that even though we deserve what Ananias and Sapphira got, Instead, we get what Peter got. So I want to close uh, this sermon by 
reading a, a poem that I have uh, come to love uh, by John Piper called Peter, Ananias, and Sapphira. There's uh, dozens of these that Piper has written over the years, and uh, kind of like the story I told at the beginning of the sermon, it's just sanctified imagination. Uh, we don't know exactly that this would have happened, but I think it's a marvelous reflection on the nature of grace. So I want to read it. There, in a lonely field unsold, the graves were only hours old where Ananias and his wife lay dead because the breath of life, once freely given by their God, has freely ceased, and thus the rod of wrath and justice fell upon their sad deceit. The light of dawn had not yet lit the dismal field, nor any crowing cock revealed the imminence of day. Beside the simple graves where he had cried through half the night, there on a stone sat Peter, staring, numb, alone. All night the scene ran through his head. Again and then again, the dread look on his face, an awful sound as Ananias hit the ground and died at once because he lied to man and God. For what? Some pride, some suicidal passion for a little cash, a little more to spend on what now from the grave? Oh, Ananias, why? Why crave what you already owned? All night the scene filled Peter's mind and fight against it as he might, it came again. We sold a field and claim now in the presence of our Christ, this is the sum, now sacrificed for love of Jesus and the poor. Take this, we pray, and may it cure some sickness of the flesh or soul. But even while he spoke, the whole deceit was open to the mind of Peter by the Lord. I find your liberality smells more of hell than our sweet Christ. Before you sold this field, was it not yours? And afterward the same? How lures this money then your soul to lie to man and God? What will you buy with money you have got by such a foolish scheme? However much in all the world will it recoup the cost of making God a dupe? Before he could say any more, the man collapsed. And on the floor, the cunning seller of his land was dead, his money in his hand. And Peter stood as speechless as a corpse before the God who has the right to give and take the breath of life and set the time for death. So it was not his design, nor did he know that God so swift would rid the church of such a sin. And while he trembled there with brazen guile, Sapphira, Ananias' wife, appeared. And Peter thought, this life as well, O Lord, will you require? She smiled and said, it's my desire, just like my husband's, that the sum which, by the grace of God, has come into our hands by selling one of our large fields be given, and none of it be kept for us. Praise be to God, who for us is the key to wealth and happiness. The look on Peter's face perplexed and shook Sapphira for an instant. Then she smiled as Peter asked, and when you sold it, was it for this price that you bring here? She said, precise and to the penny, like our love for Christ. And what we're dreaming of is you take this and bless the poor. We trust you, Peter. It is sure. A man of God does not deceive. She wondered at his tears. I grieve, he said, to ask, why this accord? To test the spirit of the Lord. Between you and your husband when the world would have been yours? Or can you buy eternal life unpriced when you have made a fool of Christ? 
the feet of those who buried your accomplice come. And it is sure as you are one in lying breath, God says you will be one in death. One mercy now remains. How brief today your widowhood and grief. All through the night, again and then again, he cringed and saw the men first carry Ananias to the grave and then Sapphira through the fading light of day like two limp flowers cut from where they grew and tossed away. But then as day began to break and night gave way to early morning gray, a sound pierced Peter's mind and turned around the way he saw the world. A bird, a crowing cock. And when he heard the voice of this old friend, the night came back to him. When he, in spite of all his boasts, fell like a leaf before a breeze and his belief denied. I do not know the man, he said. Oh, yes, you're from his clan, the servants of the priest declared. We've seen him with you. You're just scared to tell the truth. I do not know the man, he said. You show that you're from Galilee by how you speak. And so he took a vow and with a curse said one more time, I do not know this man. The crime that he committed in those lies now rose before his weary eyes a thousand times more heinous than Sapphira's lies or the man who put her to it. Peter sat there trembling, weak and stunned now at the difference. Lord, why, he cried. My sin is worse. Three times I lied while you were suffering for me. I do not know why this should be that they should die and I should live or how you wrath and mercy give. He lifted up his hands and said, Oh Lord, why did I not drop dead? And then the Lord replied, It's true, my friend. Your sin was worse. And you deserve the countenance of wrath far more than these two here. Your path led straight to hell. And if I would have let you go, no power could have kept you from the flames. I did not owe you this, nor it is hid from open sight that you, my friend, are saved by grace and in the end are chosen unconstrained by good or evil deeds that would or could be made the root of my decrees in heaven and on earth I please the counsel of my wisdom first for centuries my name has burst the chains laid on my will by man when he presumes to shape my plan around his self-defining will a futile thing for I fulfill the purposes I formed before the world was made Do not make war against my freedom, Peter. All that I have ever done to call and carry you is free. Receive this gift and tremble as you grieve beside these graves. If it were not for grace, this would have been your lot. They fell before your feet depraved that you might know how you were saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for grace. Thank you for the grace that preserves us each moment despite our sin, despite our hypocrisy, despite our masks and our pretending. And God, just because you haven't done it to us doesn't mean you can't or, or won't. So I pray that the kind of fear that hit the church in these early days, would hit us. 
God, that we would take our sin and our hypocrisy and our uh, masks off by the grace of Christ and that we would walk in the freedom of truth, not pretending we're something we're not. Thank you, Lord. Pray in Christ's name, amen.